0: And so we might say this is an experience of
1: the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we explore how to live a more conscious and human life in the face of digital chaos. My name is Josh Chaplin, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, Jamie and I sit down with investor, startup advisor, yoga instructor, host of the Look Up Podcast, and friend Mark Weinstein.
0: Basically, people spend where they spend their dollars, where they spend their attention. And so, you know, we're spending 30, 40, 50 percent of our days um, in virtual worlds, Um, whether it be, you know, in a Telegram chat, on Facebook, on Twitter. You know, for better or worse, there's this convergence of our um consciousness
1: in the virtual and the real mark shares strategies for us to consider how to balance a digital environment with mindfulness and spirituality he looks at the empowering potential of cryptocurrency and digital art and the importance of true gratitude for others this conversation was recorded a day before the 2020 united states presidential election You and Jamie had the opportunity to discuss memes on the Look Up podcast, and you and Douglas had an opportunity to discuss human autonomy in a digital age on one of your pilot episodes. Today, we want to look at how you integrate mindfulness techniques and yoga into your work as an entrepreneur and investor.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me on, um, Josh and Jamie. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to have this conversation finally as well. I've been looking forward to it. And uh, you know, thanks for for inviting Douglas on on the show early on. I think sight unseen before I had recorded any any lookup episodes. That was really really kind of you both. Um, but I think you know, I think it's a it's a forever journey is kind of the answer that I would offer. Um, I certainly go through you know multi month periods where I feel extremely stressed um in my regular work routine i find it very difficult to sit and meditate and also am hyper aware that that's when i need it the most so it can this can often lead to um actually like a, a su- like a super spiral of negative feedback which is uh, kind of this you know i know the practices that make me feel good uh i know that they are simple and not easy and when i'm not doing them i then can fall into a place where i am kind of like negging myself you know the critic picks up and it's like oh man you're really not taking care of yourself right now like you know why aren't you meditating why aren't you working out why aren't you you know doing breath work why are you eating like you know all these junk food and you're on your phone all the time you're talking about you know looking up from your phone on your podcast you're such a hypocrite You know, all this stuff (laughs) will come into play. And I think what I've learned is that, um, you know, there are kind of like long wave and short wave cycles uh, for mental health and my mental health. And I've learned to just uh, get more comfortable with that rhythm, that sometimes I will be really on point with my self-work and other times I will need to do to focus on other areas of my life. And I find that life can often be a game of of important thing whack-a-mole. So it's like <laughs> I'm focusing on my work right now and then all of these other elements fall off, or I really want to spend some time with my family because I haven't seen anyone in months. And then I feel like I'm not working hard enough. Um, you know, and and it's just a reminder that everything's happening over a longer period of time. And it doesn't all have to kind of fit perfectly right this moment.
2: How long did it take you? to, and yeah, I want to express thanks for you being on here as well. I, I had such a good time talking to you uh, last time we were on your show and it was such a oh, good conversation. Fine. It was, it was a bit like one of those like moments of clarity for myself too, where it's like what, being able to synthesize years worth of work to talk to you about it. I, it was one of the most fun I've ever had, like speaking to anybody.
0: Um, oh, thanks yeah. so much, but I loved it. I've, I actually just reshared that. I Yeah. Thank you week, so much. Because we got the election, you know, tomorrow and it's just like, in memes, <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> meme central. But, anyways, that's another conversation.
2: But I think I appreciate what you're saying because I want to. I would definitely want to extrapolate from that. I think one of the things you just mentioned was something that took me, I think, far too long to learn, and I think that was one of the best parts of learning that I've ever actually had. And I do want to relate that back to your work as well, which was that it, I I was insulted years ago. I was told by like somebody older than me that they were like. You know, this is a longer arc. You don't have to have everything at this exact moment. It it, it happens, but you have to make it happen. And I was insulted. I was like, I can't believe you would say that to me. Like, we could all have this now. And now, as somebody who literally, I I start my day with yoga. I start my day with mindfulness, and I it's only way I could get through. But it it not only puts it into perspective, but it makes me feel like kind of embarrassed by how I reacted back then. So we, I, I kind of want to like talk to you a bit about learning, like. How did you come to where you are? What was you're you're now in the stature of an entrepreneur, somebody who's an investor, someone who's an expert in cryptocurrency? So how did you? What's your methods? What's your
0: experience in learning? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and it's something that I think I'm still you know I'm still figuring out. I think, I, I mean, I think it starts with just two fundamental um, parts of myself that are innate. And I I would say that like, I've had these my whole life. um. So I'm not sure that I learned them, but I just recognize them as, as just constants in my life. Um, the first is just an insatiable curiosity. Uh, I love to learn new things. Like I I greatly enjoy picking up a book and learning a new subject or going to a new place and learning a new language. You know, it just... It's just what gets me going like if I can learn something new. And and the flip side of that is that I'm a little bit ADHD with it. Like I like I learn something new <laughs> <laughs> I'll be reading, you know, 3 4 books at a time because I know that if I start one and then I try to force myself to just finish that from from front to back, then I'll never finish it. But if I pick up a book on economic history and then I move into a self-help book and then I go to a fiction book you know, over a couple of, you know, a couple of months, couple of weeks, I'll be able to finish all of them because I'm satiating that curiosity. So I like to go kind of like a mile deep on many, many different subjects. Um, and that's always, you know, always been the case for me. Um, the second bit is I really value freedom. Uh, and I think it comes with it comes with that curiosity is like, I want to be free to adventure. I want to be free to kind of self-direct self the work that I do. And I would say that my entrepreneurial path and my yoga path um, are one and the same in that they're both just like a search for freedom and potentially a search for meaning. Um, and what comes with that uh, might be freedom. And sometimes I fall into like the trap, you know, of like, often I fall into the trap of like, well, if I just had a little more money, then I'd be free, you know, or if I could Mm. just, you know, sell this business, then I'd be free. Or, you know, if the podcasts were, you know, generating annual revenue, then I'd be free. Or so there's always like the, I still suffer from the if then kind of conditional um, framework around happiness that I can fall into in, in this kind of Mm -hmm. like desire for freedom but those are those are uh, i think just two fundamental core qualities that that i i probably was born with um and that i've developed over time to- you know have kind of like strengthened over time and really guided me onto a path that is still very very scattered and i i hope one day i'll look back and say like wow that is That is actually all majorly integrated and it's just taking you some time.
1: Were these mindfulness practices that you developed a result of being an entrepreneur at heart and your innate curiosity or did your entrepreneurial uh, conquests or pursuits lead you to need to develop uh, mindfulness techniques? as uh, not just the coping mechanism, but um, as, as ways to uh, regulate your feedback loops to put yourself into positive ones.
0: Yeah, I think you nailed it. It's the latter. You know, I, I, well, in university, it's kind of funny because it was like the ambition that led me to the philosophy and then the philosophy that led me to the practice. And then the practice became the counterpoint to the ambition that balanced me. And so I like, you know, I studied Mandarin uh, undergraduate at Wharton because I felt with a Wharton degree and four years of Mandarin, I could go to China and conquer the world. Um, This was like 2006 to 10. um, And I felt like. I, I actually had seen the Shanghai skyline in Mission Impossible 3 of all places. And I was like, holy shit, that's China. <laughs> and I, was, you know, and I was like, all right, like China's the future. This is where business is going to happen. And I need to have all the skills. Um, and, you know, in that journey, I actually had to take for my minor, um, not just language classes, but I had to take Uh, history and philosophy classes to understand the culture better. And so I took this East Asian philosophy class, which led me down the path of kind of Confucianism. And then more importantly for me, kind of Taoism. And I read the Tao Te Ching and I read Zhuangzi. And I had to, you know, I wrote about these and I just found the philosophy of non-action and uh, which is known as Wu Wei in the Taoist philosophy philosophy. and the kind of power of this omnipresent dao or way to be really compelling and offered me a frame for you know as a as a an ethnic jew who kind of had rejected his his religious upbringing after bar mitzvah offered me a new framework for thinking about spirituality um and it was from there that you know yoga philosophy became of interest to me and Yoga philosophy, I picked up at the same time I started practicing yoga all around this time, kind of my junior, senior year at college. And the yoga practice um, over time, when I quit my job in investment banking uh, and started my first company, became the only place where I felt truly sane. And after an hour on the mat of just like wringing out my body and all of the excess energy that was getting developed from the the major s- emotional swings of being an entrepreneur, I felt balanced <laughs> and stable and whole. And it became so obvious that I needed that practice. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll pause there for a second. There's there's you know a next leg of that that kind quasi story, but. Uh, I've said a lot already
2: well I definitely want to hear more of that because yeah because this is it's interesting like your path in which you found that so early I guess it's not not early but you found it at a time that it was most necessary I, I've told this story to Josh many many times at this point it's probably one of the things that found is the foundation of the digital void in general and our approach to like our content and our and our activism and the, the work we do on a daily basis my my entry was like so, so late. I, I, I've tried out every religion, uh, raised as Catholic, Jewish, Methodist. Um, <laughs> and then later like fr- found my way into a bunch of other strange, uh, experiences in different places. And then, um, something I- I'm like, I wouldn't call myself an entrepreneur in any sense because I don't know how to make money. Um, but, <laughs> but I do know how to start projects and I know how to like, make programs i, I founded a, a major humans walk around with a degree that i came up with but more important than that is something i want to draw back to that you mentioned which is the quest for like freedom i've at this point quit more jobs than years i've been alive i've 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 i'm on my i believe i'm on my 39th job at this point <laughs> um, and and to me, it's not. I, I, people always say like, oh, that's that's a strange thing. And I see it as like promotions. Like I see it as like that's me hopping through promotions, but also like a, a quest for like trying to learn as much as I can in different places. So I want, I, re, I would love to revisit like what what you were saying about like kind of like this this part of seeking freedom, but also being on the mat like, I don't think I go as hard as you do <laughs> on the mat. It sounds like it's, uh, it's very clear that I obviously need some more practice, um, but I want to know, like, what is, what's the draw? Like what, what goes through, and maybe this is giving away too much of your secrets or, or, or like your inner well, knowledge, I but. I don't have any, any secrets. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an open book. What, what and goes through? Possible. What's in your mind? Like when you're, when you're saying these things, like what's it, what are you saying? Like, how do you, are you coming to some sort of like realization? Is there like a light or is it just sort of like, I I need to know more and to feel different? Like what drives that, that
0: action? So what's driving, you know, I, I, I ask this myself because I wonder if, sometimes I wonder if the drive is actually a, a, a dissatisfaction, you know, and kind of like a lingering dissatisfaction mm-hmm. with what is and um and that is kind of like just in me and i constantly am looking for what's next right and actually at the end of my yoga teacher training one thing that i thought was really fascinating that they did was they broke up the class of like 60 or so odd teacher trainees and they broke us up into into small groups and at the end of each group we there were my group had three people in it and we all had to teach one another. And that was kind of like our, our, you know, final test to become teachers. Yeah. It was like, it was the graduation, but it was more like the exam before. And there were three of us in the room and they were like, we brought you into this room because you, you three share a certain quality and we want to share with you something. And what they shared was this is a huge accomplishment, what you've just gone through. And not, you know, there are many people that do teacher trainings, but you know, these, it, it is an accomplishment, right? And like, see it as such. And what they told me was like, when you climb to the top of the mountain, take a moment to breathe in like the, the fresh air and take in the view before you look up to the next mountain and start climbing again. And I think, I think that was just so resonant for me and so necessary to hear um, and I still kind of do that, you know, I still have a hard time being like, oh, this is, you know, I've accomplished this. It's more like, oh yeah, that was okay. And like, I did that, but like, I really want to do this, you know, and that's kind of something that I'm navigating is like how, and, and it, it goes back to this concept that I learned, you know, 12 years ago of or non-action, which is like, acting without acting or finding finding action in the decision not to act, not to take that next leap, you know, almost like a contentment uh, within the present and within what we're actually doing. So if there's anything that you could take away from that answer, it's probably that I, I don't know. <laughs> well, that's, I think, is that I want
2: I want to take that away from it. And first, how weird is it or normal is it? that when you did that breathe in, I breathed in at the same time. Like that's, I guess that's a sign of how well you're able to, <laughs> to teach. Like I could feel that, I could feel that air, like breathing in that oxygen. I started um, meditating when I hit the, probably one of the darkest periods of my life. Like something just went really bad. And that dark period lasted several years. And honestly, I don't think I would have gotten out of it without meditation and yoga. Yoga is fairly recent for me. I've only been doing it for a little over a year now, which is, I just got to touch my feet, which is awesome. Um, but the, but I, I have this phrase, and I have probably brought it up on this show before, but I've, I always say that like, when you know nothing, you know everything. And, that's, mm-hmm. and that to me is like the saddest thing I could ever imagine. And coming up on this election is like, what's, what's daunting me and what's hurting me in a, a very interior way is that some people are very proud of that, like this, this thing of this like, idea that they can be certain of knowledge, the certainty of knowing everything. And you could only know everything when you know nothing, like when you have no desire to learn anymore. And to me, that was like a big breakthrough for me was realizing that I can't change them. I could help them through teaching, like through my activism, but I could understand how I can continue to kind of seek that. And I've not studied the work you've studied. And this, this idea of non-action is like, Beautiful to me. It sounds that sounds fantastic because it sounds like when you say non-action, it is action, right? Like it is like it's action but non-action. Can can you? Am I am I saying that right? Does that make sense or is that? Yeah, no, you,
0: you are. And it's it's uwe is a is a is a very um, it's a very complicated concept and one that I think you know philo- philosophers are still unraveling and and there's many differing views on it and I certainly wouldn't claim to have have a complete understanding of this concept but for me it is it's kind of like the two sides of a seesaw mm-hmm. and you know on the one side of that seesaw is you know is is action and activity and ambition and the other side of that seesaw is contentment and um, com- not complacency but contentment I think and it's, fine. it's striking that kind of like perfect balance where the seesaw is completely level. And when we are, it's both finding a stillness in action. So when I'm sprinting a thousand miles an hour and I'm trying to, you know, to get the podcast up and, you know, to write the newsletter and I've got 15 calls with portfolio companies and, you know, raising capital or whatever it is all at the same time, it's like, how can I find a stillness within um, within, through that activity. And then also on the flip side of that, when I, when I'm not acting, when I'm not on the hamster wheel and I'm finding stillness, how can I remind myself that this is also an active choice? It's an active choice to, to be still, you know, even if you choose not to do something that in and of itself is a choice. Um, and you know, it it also there's a concept uh, there's a concept in yoga known as karma yoga, and karma yoga has this has this uh, part of its philosophy, which is, you know, acting without attachment to the results of our actions. So I'm going to do this, you know, forearm scorpion, but it's more just about the act of doing it rather than, you know, whether or not it looks. Yeah, it was beautiful for my Instagram photo. <laughs> um, and I find that the concept of uwe is also aligned with the concept of karma yoga in this in this almost like flow state of activity, which is another loaded word, this flow state kind of consciousness where it's just you're just moving and you're still, but you're you're still moving. So how do we in this
2: oversaturated world? I mean, every there's media that's, we're in what would be considered like potentially an infodemic, a media-demic. It's, we're just, it's oversaturation. How does one center a solid knowledge of where they're going when there's just so much noise that surrounds them? How does one gain, regain control of that in any way? In an unrelated to your, like the way you personally navigate, like success, how do we do it just on a day-to-day let's approach things cogently, maturely, responsibly, but also not let it overcome us.
0: Yeah, I think I think you kind of answered the question with the question, which is like when things feel so macro and out of control as is the case with this election and covid and you know what's happening in in, in the world, it's easy to feel this sense of overwhelm. And I think what's unique about this moment in time is that globally as you know all humanity are experiencing a simultaneous overwhelm um that's fueled by kind of our interconnectedness uh via the media you know more interconnected than we've ever been more information constant bombardment 24/7 just more bits and bits and bits and um and it can truly be it can you know for me sometimes it leads to kind of like a little bit of an apathy feeling where i'm just like uh, I can't do anything about anything, so what's what's it all matter like a nihilism? But I think in your question, you offered, you know, on a day to day in your own kind of life, it's just taking back control over that which we can control. And so we can't control what's happening all around us, but we can control the way that we respond. And I choose the word respond rather than react because I think of a reaction as input reaction. And I think of a response as input space response. And so we can control, we can create that space between the stimulus and how we choose to allow it to affect us. And that's super important. That's really all that we have is is the control of that that space and that response everything else is sort of outside of us i'm not um i'm not sure that i believe in manifestation fully i i i think about it sometimes and i know there's like a very strong contingent of Spiritual leaders who talk about we are in we are actually in fact in control of our reality and can manifest the reality that we choose. I I think in a way um, that really is just about controlling our subjective perception about events that happen to us and around us.
1: What's so interesting to me is that you've been on this long philosophical. And spiritual journey for over a decade now and you arrived at this point within the last few years where after your experience with Firefest you became interested in digital feedback loops and human autonomy in a digital age and your work i'm not sure if it started at the time of Firefest or after Firefest um is now heavily involved in crypto and i remember reading digital gold by nathaniel popper a few years ago and i was Mm. immediately interested in cryptocurrency and at that point i began to invest in everything from litecoin to bitcoin to ethereum to uh, xrp to um a bunch of altcoins and i heavily went into that space and um it was only after doing more research that i stumbled upon uh, the research that showed me exactly how much energy consumption, mine, not just the mining process, but um, the transacting process of Bitcoin was using and many larger cryptocurrencies, um, larger in the sense of, of how frequently they're transacted. And I'm curious how... In a crypto space, and as someone that has experienced a very interesting professional journey, um, I'm, I, I know that you've discussed Firefest ad nauseum, so I'm not so interested to discuss it here. But how do you apply kind of a sense of philosophical and moral responsibility with working in a space that um, many look to as antithetical to humanist values because of uh, the energy consumption associated with climate change?
0: Yeah, so. I think that um, outside of Bitcoin, uh, which uses proof of work, so it essentially consumes energy and converts that energy into um, a solution for a math problem, essentially, um, that returns a certain number of zeros at the beginning of that um, output. I'm trying to think of the right way to describe it. Uh, Most crypto assets. And networks or protocols, those words are all kind of used interchangeably in this space. I think we're still working on a common nomenclature. Um, Are are moving towards or already have implemented proof of stake um, consensus. And proof of stake consensus is solving this, in part, solving this energy consumption by forcing the miners, quote unquote, of the blocks, which are just lists of transactions being ordered um, that are unchangeable once confirmed uh, via stake. They have to actually put up a certain amount of the underlying protocol currency in order to, valid- to have the kind of ability to validate blocks. It's kind of like uh, you could liken it to a taxi medallion. You can't Drive a taxi in New York City unless you first have purchased the medallion, and so once you purchase the medallion, you have something at stake, um, and you're going to continue to drive the taxi uh, because you have skin in the game, and so that consensus mechanism kind of moves us away from um, proof of work for the vast majority of computation that happens um, in you know in the the these crypto networks. Now Bitcoin is kind of the largest and most liquid. Um, crypto asset. And it also has the kind of largest mining operations in terms of consuming energy. Um, I don't claim to kind of have the latest statistics, but I believe that um, much of the uh, hype around energy consumption is overblown because oftentimes Bitcoin mining is positioned in places where the energy um, would otherwise have been wasted. So, for example, in the United States, Um, There's a company called Crusoe Energy, which recently launched um, and it puts data centers near natural gas uh, fracking facilities where there are already um, there's I forget exactly what what it's called. It's like a certain type of wasteful explosion that's happening. Um, super, super wasteful, and they capture that excess energy and they power the data center. And Crusoe is actually going to be powering Bitcoin um, mining operation with that excess energy that otherwise would have gone to waste. Uh, most other, most hmm. other um, Bitcoin mining operations in, in China, for example, to my knowledge, are located near um, clean energy sources like hydroelectric power sources where that energy is actually also going to waste. Um, it's not, it's not going to these communities. So, like when you think about energy usage, there's also storage and transport, and I think people often lose sight of that. Uh, so, I don't, I don't have really like a humanist concern it, uh, about my participation in the crypto space around the climate uh, change s- issue because I think it's actually a non-issue. It's kind of like a like s- something that uh, people outside of the space really like to point to as another reason to kind of fud, quote unquote, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Um, Bitcoin. Um, I would actually flip it and say that I believe in Bitcoin um, because I am a humanist. Um, I believe in in crypto networks because Mm. I I believe in kind of the innovative potential of uh, humanity to kind of redesign systems in a a way that aligns incentives towards solving potentially the tragedy of the commons in our lifetime. and also removing kind of uh, this Cantillon insider effect that we see when you have massive monetary easing by central banks, and that money doesn't flow; uh, it's not distributed evenly, um, and it flows towards insiders. Uh, you know, an example of that would be the latest stimulus package in the U.S., uh, where corporations that participated in massive share buybacks and executives who had uh, quite high compensation over the previous five years, uh, received government funding, uh, having misallocated capital and been poor fiduciaries, and still can pay themselves, these executives, $13 million a year. Uh, and only they had to reduce their their pay above $13 million by 50%, I believe was in the bill, if they've taken government money, even if they haven't paid it back. And so Bitcoin creates this kind of like non-sovereign um, non sovereign digitally native currency that I think can can you know anyone can participate in it's open and permissionless and so I think that's awesome and then when you talk about social media and these platforms I think we have an incentive issue um, which is also partially driven by a lot of a lot of the money printing um, which is a deeper issue but we have this incentive issue where we're kind of in a capitalist system and these Centralized social media platforms have one business model, and that business model is to um, harvest user attention in order in order to push them more and more targeted, highly targeted advertisements. And so, I don't blame those companies. They need you know they they are existing in a framework where they need to maximize shareholder profits. But can we build um, you know protocols beside them where stakeholders, Mm -hmm. users, are actually compensated for? Um, the data that they provide, their their personal information or their self-sovereign information, to the network, where they they are able to control the permissioning of how that information gets used and get compensated for it. And everyone kind of shares, the users, the, the developers, the validators all share in the value that is created from that network. Um, and what I find that's one thing I find very cool about crypto. It's like these experiments in incentive models and then experiments in new governance frameworks. And what we've realized after, you know, 12 years or so of of this industry is that those are all really, really cool, like sounding highfalutin ideas, Um, but in practice, they're really, really, really hard. And so I don't think we've struck on any solutions that are, that are, you know, there yet. So I don't want to pretend, I don't want to pretend like it's all roses.
1: Right. We have people like Jaron Lanier who want to monetize which side of the bed you get out on. And then we have (laughs) browsers. And then, and then we have browsers like Brave that are experimenting with the basic attention token, which is at least a little bit more um, practical in terms of uh, use case. But at the same time, it's still it doesn't seem to be a, a blanket solution. It's still monetizing someone's attention and preserving or reifying a lot of the existing structures. I'm curious, um, as I'm curious, how you arrived at someone who is interested not just it, who's working in the cryptocurrency space and not just um how you became involved in it but um for an audience that may not necessarily be as uh keen to just how cryptocurrency works or um even how to trade cryptocurrency what do you consider to be the largest barriers to entry and how can we make cryptocurrency uh, accessible to people uh, to empower folks to feel like they can um, transact securely um, in a time when people generally distrust big technology? How how do you do that? We spoke to um, Ron Kim in New York, uh, New York Assemblyman, a few months ago at the beginning of the pandemic, and Ron is developing something, uh, a project with Robert Hockett, um, a professor of law at Cornell, and it's called the in- Inclusive Value Ledger which is a a publicly owned uh, ledger. Josh, I think you shared that with me.
0: Um, And I think it it landed on a tab that sat in my browser with a hundred other tabs to be read until I had an update on my computer and lost all those tabs. I'm sure that's happened to you before as well, but I'm glad you brought it up again because I I wanted to read that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that was kind of four questions in one, but it was the synthesis synthesis um, of of everything. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that's actually really, really ironic that the question itself is four questions in one, because I think that part of the problem, but also one of the greatest opportunities of the cryptocurrency um, or crypto asset or digital asset or, you know, blockchain space um, is that there are so many roads up that mountain. um, But It, it, you know, it crosses so many disciplines like Bitcoin itself crosses um, microeconomic game theory, um, macroeconomic monetary policy theory and and fiscal stimulus, Um, cryptography, energy consumption, as you as you you just described. um, Coordination, that's just that's just Bitcoin alone. And so, and technology, of course, right? Like running nodes and operating software, and um, figuring out how those all communicate with one another. Um, and so, there is just a lot of complex subjects that one individual can become an expert in that can drive them to, you know, to crypto assets. And for me, you know, Bitcoin was um, was the clear kind of winner because my background and studies were in economics, and having come up through Wharton during the financial crisis, I was extremely jaded by the Keynesian models that we were being taught because they didn't, no professor at Wharton predicted that there was going to be an impending financial crisis at this time. And um, no, well, anyway, so macroeconomics um, got me into Bitcoin. And the first company that I started uh, was a business that was built to protect uh, investors both institutions and retail investors or individuals against the potential negative impact of unprecedented quantitative easing or money printing across the globe so that was my path and then this like concept of like a scarce non-sovereign digital um, gold essentially or a non-sovereign store of value uh really resonated with me and i was i read the satoshi white paper and i was like all right this this makes sense. And that got me through the door. And then it, it took three years before I realized that there were all of these other use cases um, to, to dive into. And then it's just like a smorgasbord of, of different ideas and opportunities and different paths that you can take um, towards this space. And I think that's why it's intimidating uh, to a lot of people. I think we also have kind of like a marketing problem um, in bit- with Bitcoin in particular. It's a bit of a religion so you have like the loudest voices are kind of the most fundamentalist voices and they can be quite off-putting um, at times. And I think that tends to kind of scare people away. It's like our Bitcoiners just all crazy, you know, tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorists that think, you know, the dollar's going to collapse any minute and the whole global world order is going to shift like... No, it doesn't have to be like that. You know, there's institutions that are investing and just believe it's the best performing asset from, you know, an investment standpoint, uh, both in terms of returns and sharp ratio over the last decade. Um, and we expect that to continue. Um, and so there's many kind of paths here, which I think that and then the marketing issue um, is, is a problem. And then we have a UX issue, right? Like anything, you, you know, I think the easiest way for folks to get involved in crypto is to go onto Coinbase. You know, as a platformer, I invested in a company called Swan Bitcoin, which makes it easy for anyone to kind of just come in and purchase Bitcoin for the first time. And also offers a series of educational materials for beginners on Bitcoin. You know, we Swan wants to create, quote unquote, Bitcoiners, um, not just kind of have people purchase Bitcoin, especially because it's such a, a volatile asset. The investment performance has been very strong, but if you kind of zoom into specific time periods, you could have lost a lot of money if you bought the top in 2018, for example. We still haven't, you know, if you bought January 2018 for $20,000, you still haven't made your money back. And there were times when you were down, you know, um, 70, 80%, um, almost 90% on your investment. And so that drives people away. And if you don't understand the fundamentals of investing in a volatile asset, then you have to be very careful in terms of how much capital you can allocate towards that asset. And so what I tell people that are kind of learning and crypto curious is like, get involved and you know make your first purchase, but maybe like one to 5% of you know your total investable net worth. And the 5% end of the spectrum is more if you're young and you can afford to lose that capital because it is still just an eleven-year experiment, right? Like it's it's almost as old as the euro. Ironically, Bitcoin is. Wow. But But yeah, the euro is only I think I, I want to say just about um for fourteen years older um than than Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. So in the grand scheme of things, that's nothing. Uh, but I think I think it's important to educate people as well. So.
2: No, I think that's important. I think I think that you answered one of the most important questions that I had, which is like the the level of entry. Um so to bring this like kind of full circle and wrap it around, I didn't know I be, being a digital media like like scholar and like somebody who has to read about it and i taught myself like i come from a very traditional media background i did believe this is not a joke i played mist in like 1995 and after i was done with that game i was like oh my god this is a, this is a trend like this isn't gonna stick around so i didn't really use the internet at all <laughs> until like 2005 ish when i was working for mtv and they're just like uh we're gonna have to do some casting we're gonna use this thing called myspace and i was like what people use this And so <laughs> aim was like my my biggest level of like Interactivity, <laughs> the game was great man i used to like code like That's colors gay. into my away message yeah god if we had a may west on social media right now it would be a world of difference and then i was i started studying youtube when it first came out because i was like this is this is a game changer this is like this is it this is the change in every way that we're going to interact with media and people are just like oh it's a sandbox for videos so i was like no this is a culture factory this is where people will literally be developing culture coming from a website. And so I taught myself that type of study. I learned, I still am not a crypto investor, and I, I kind of wish I was, you answered how to fi- kind of find my way in. But I learned a lot about crypto and learned a lot in the last several months since you and I last spoke, because one of our questions you asked me was, oh, you, so if you're in memes, you should know about crypto. And then I started going, what, what's that connection? And then I started realizing that When somebody said rare pepes, they were speaking about its crypto value, not its value inside the image machine. Cause I was like, oh, that's just a picture. But I didn't realize it had to do with a piece of blockchain, that it had to do with a piece of currency. And so how, if you could like just make this more from like my consumption or maybe like just the people listening to to because they know memes and stuff, where is that intersection? What does that mean when somebody says, Oh, like how like a rare x is because of this on the blockchain and that is a
0: crypto type of currency what is that what does that mean yeah so it's actually a really interesting time for this particular use case um, so what is a blockchain good at a blockchain is good at um, it's it's good at storing data that cannot be uh, appended so it's it's unchangeable once once it's on the blockchain it requires uh, a 51% attack, it's called, to roll back the blockchain to change one transaction, which requires a ton of capital and energy and is not in econ- not economically aligned with the interests of the folks that are actually earning rewards by validating a network. And so if, it's, if something is unchangeable, then you can actually create scarcity mm. for digital items. And I think this is a groundbreaking use case um, for blockchain. It's known as a non-fungible token. Uh, But essentially what it is, it's a digital collectible or digital art. Mm. And so you're purchasing along with this rare Pepe, you are purchasing a cryptographic hash function that proves that this digital, this rare Pepe is one of only 10 that have ever been created. And you alone have the wallet that holds the private key to send, loan, um, delegate, uh, whatever you want to do with that asset. There's many new kind of use cases coming around for these, these digital items. And so, when you think about like in the world of of fine art, you know, copycats um, and and uh, plagiarized works are almost indistinguishable sure. from from the real works at this point in time, mm-hmm. if you don't have an expert eye. But what separates the 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 original from the um, I'm blanking on what the right word is. I think it may be plagiarized, but I don't think that's the right the word. Forgery. The, the forgery yeah it is provenance
2: oh, and so right, proof,
0: right. proof of the history, the transaction history of that wow. asset over time. Mm-hmm. So it's not that you own, it's not just that you own the artwork, it's that you can prove that you own the artwork. And so now you can do that with digital assets. And what that opens up is that creators, not only digital artists that are making, you know, memes or making, um, gifs or gifs I think it might be pronounced gifs it doesn't, that's yeah, it's either I'm one yeah. <laughs> on. um you know they they can be now be compensated but also like musicians I know a ton of first of all I don't know if you guys follow beeple crap he he's a digital artist he just sold his first um digital collectible on the blockchain this past week um and it had a lot to do with the election so it's this like timepiece that was sold and it went for I want to say 67 thousand dollars um, but then a couple of musician friends of mine, one of whom is actually I'm going to release an episode of my podcast with him this week, Justin Blau and a DJ named RAC, um, have been releasing uh, NFTs or digital collectibles with music. So now you, you as, a, as a super fan of an artist like Kanye could own the only, only, digital, um, r- the only rights to one specific digital track. Uh, and I think that's really cool as well. So, it, And also you could program into this asset that whenever it gets resold, the artist gets compensated, uh, which I think is huge as well, because oftentimes you know, in, in the art world, assets get sold and then the artist doesn't see a penny as the price appreciates over time. With these digital items, the artist or his or her estate can get compensated in perpetuity for every transaction that happens in their creation over history. That's amazing.
2: It's <laughs> absolutely amazing because it's like that's it's a solve for the failures of longitudinal, like discrepancies and like value and authenticity. You know, it's like we worry about like the the idea that something is real or isn't real, and there's no real ability to place a value on the the real of that. And like then we end up in this this consistent like fight between what is considered even real so then you get in this meta fight about it you know and then this this kind of holds the artist the creator the file top to bottom as part of a signifier of like what is the actual object and there's there's actually a really interesting book and i don't want to go too off course with this so we're not gonna go too deep into this because my next question is about what's next but there's this book uh, called um on the existence of digital objects by yukui the um Uh, the digital media scholar. And it basically asks the question of like, what is the, how do we even prove something digital is real? Like, how do you even know that? And it's, it's, he he takes it through an epistemological approach of like, what is digital media just in general and how do we get that? But this seems to be like that middle ground of a solve for it. So I think like one last question for you is what, what's next, where, what happens? Like, what else do we quantum, what else goes on? Like, where are we now and what comes up
0: next? In terms, in terms of, like of
2: crypto, uh, in terms of like
0: understanding man, that's blockchain. Like, that's that's the, the multi-hundred billion dollar <laughs> Oh yeah, question. right. If you knew, like, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I I My thesis on kind of like digital collectibles in crypto is basically people spend where they spend their dollars, where they spend their attention. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're spending 30, 40, 50% of our days. Um, in virtual worlds, um, whether it be you know in a Telegram chat, on Facebook, on Twitter, you know for better or worse, there's this convergence of our um, consciousness in the virtual and the real, uh, and they're starting to converge. And one company I invested in called Aglet. Um, the founder and CEO Ryan Mullins uh, named the holding company of Aglet, which is this kind of like Pokemon Go for sneakerheads, but it's just really this <laughs> massive. A AR style game that takes place in the real world where you can go and, and hunt for shoes and then they can be converted into real shoes in the real world is super cool. Um, but he, the company is called On Life, oh. and the reason he calls it On Life is because he thinks it's nonsensical to separate online and offline. Which, you know, for, for someone like me who's talking on, uh, you know, whose podcast is Look Up and it's like, let's spend less time on our phones and all that to hold this thesis, it might be a little bit, you know seemingly contradictory, but I do believe that um, we are going to have this convergence of the virtual and the real. Um, we're going to have digital overlays uh, on the real world through AR technology and we're also going to be spending much more time in virtual worlds. You look at some place like Roblox you yep. know, in the world that they're building. And I think that you know this is known as the open Metaverse. Another yep. founder I invested in, um, Ryan Gill has created kind of identity for the open metaverse uh, through his platform crucible network, which is like these open SDKs for identity that you can pour it over from one virtual world to the next. And there's going to be ownership in these virtual worlds. And there's going to be scarcity in these virtual worlds. Um, and there's going to be transacting in these virtual worlds. And these worlds will require um, a currency that is um, well-equipped for um, for where we're going, yeah, and so I, I think that's probably where where we take it. Maybe multiplanetary, uh, multi-dimensional. If you consider each of these virtual worlds, their own dimension, um, you know, transacting and interacting. You
2: have, yeah, I mean, you the, you've literally spoken directly to. I'm on the record, tons of times at this point, that VR VR was a, a middle ground. AR is our future. That we are aiming for an augmented space someplace that's going to transact experiences that we share but we we don't experience them as sharing and i'll tell you how easy that is because the other night i was teaching a class and i was like talking i was passionately talking about a book i'd read and i got lost in zoom school i got so lost in it that i literally said to the squares on my screen i was like oh you could borrow this if you want and it like hit me i was like how the (laughs) hell I I looked at the class embarrassed. I was like, how am I going to, I have no idea how you're going to borrow this. Like, I'm sorry about saying that. Like (laughs) I was like, that's, I am limited by this screen, but then it made me think if only we were all experiencing this through like a a AR environment, I could pass this digitally. Maybe it's the same copy for all I know. And it is borrowed from one end to the other. So I I do agree with you. I think that's, we are at an entry point of, of this, that, is fascinating. And back to the beginning is like, I think it's best to be curious about this. I don't think it's important to even know what happens. It's more important to just keep asking like the questions about it, because I, I think even certainty could be a problem. And that's kind of antithetical to the idea of the, the blockchain itself. It's like, in the case of knowing more, we have to be completely uncertain about its structure to to let it grow into what it maybe has to become. And like, that also has to be us. We can't, it's not just the product. We, if we become certain, that means it becomes a problem.
0: Yeah, well, it's fascinating to think about, you know, the history of a blockchain or a network of blockchains as kind of this track record of certain, of certainty, (sighs) like in a world where it's almost impossible to make sense of events and there seem to be multiple truths, you can mathematically point to this was at least something that was true and happened at this time between these two parties, um, and it's all stored here, and it hasn't been altered because we would know if it were altered. It's it's easy to track that kind of attack, um, and so that's I haven't I haven't really thought about it in that frame, but it's cool. And you know, the biggest question mark is really like, are we are we as human humanity, are we humans going to be able to level up enough to really make sense of it all, mm. um, or are we going to destroy ourselves? Oh. First? um or or just continue in a a fugue state of confusion because it's just all quite overwhelming and there's far i mean it's it's so clear there's just far more data points than we are capable of 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 absorbing and integrating um and that goes back to the practice right it goes back to like all right like this has been a heady conversation (laughs) let's bring it back to the breath like i'm here right now (laughs) i'm outside feet on the ground Looking at trees, like it's um, I don't know. It's just like also this uh, again going back to the beginning of like the curiosity. It's also like okay, let's not chase the curiosity. Let's come back to present and what we do know and what we what we can grok and what we can control, Mm -hmm. which is in our direct vicinity, and identifying what matters. Mm -hmm. You know, the people around us, the relationships that we build. and how we interact there, just like so critical and and so simple, but so so fucking hard, you know. Just when you're just constantly bombarded um, by new new data points, new information all the time. I'm just not I'm not so sure how how we um, collectively are going to be able to kind of like move through this moment in time. And it's gonna be fascinating to see how we evolve. Like I, I'm I'm just. I, you know, 50, my, my grandma turns 101 uh, in two weeks. And I'm just like, if I got there, like what would, what will our world or worlds look like, um, in, you know, 70 years? Like I, I, I can't even project out three weeks. I don't think anyone can like, where's America going to be, uh, the day after tomorrow when we have, you know, this election, which seems exit like an existential threat to democracy, regardless of which side Mm -hmm. of the aisle you're sitting on. Mm -hmm. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. And and Mark, and Mark, you are speaking about the creation of the metaverse and new worlds and as a spiritual practitioner and guide and instructor, I'm curious what values you bring to your work and what values you encourage others to consider when investing or programming or even just having conversations about uh, so many data points that it can feel overwhelming,
0: yeah, I love that question. Thank you for asking that um and i'll share an anecdote from from ben franklin's life because ben franklin's autobiography is one of my favorite books, and he had um this game that he played essentially speaking of blackamoole where he would uh he had thirteen principles or values that he lived by and Every week, or I think it was maybe like a 13 day period or a two week period, he would select one of those principles and every day he had to live by it. And at the end of the night, he would check off whether he tr- he stayed true to that principle or not. Um, and then he once he completed a certain amount of days with that principle, he'd move on to the next. And what he found was that every time he focused on one of the 13, mm-hmm. another one would slip. And so it was like this game of values whack-a-mole. Um, but what he did say was, although he was never successful in, um, in representing every single day, all 13 of the principles that he claimed were the most important elements of his life, it was, it was the most valuable exercise that he did in his entire life. And this is a guy that did a lot of things, um, because it just kept him, you know, on track. And so I do, you know, I do kind of like to go back to, um, to principles and values and I don't do it often enough. Um, but for me, I think uh, the two that stand out the most that I really just want to live by uh, and don't claim to successfully do so all the time is uh, Satya, which is truth, um, truthfulness, uh, speaking your truth, even if there maybe be, we, we don't have necessarily agreement on what is objectively true. Communicating what feels true to me in this moment in time is going to open up a whole space for for us as kind of like a collective to get closer together and it can be really hard and it can be really raw and it can be really um scary to speak up and like i even have a lump in my throat right now just thinking about it you know in certain moments like it's just so much easier to just agree or to nod and smile or you know to shut down um and get quiet so truth uh and and clear expression of of what matters to you and then compassion. And I think yeah. compassion for the other, it's ahimsa in the yoga practice. You know, there's a lot of yogis in Bali with the tattoo on their arm. But um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's about compassion for, you know, for the other, um, where they're at, um, seeing yourself in the other, like humsa, so hum, I am you, you yeah. are me, I am that, that I am, I'm am all things everywhere. Um, That allows us to kind of, you know, meet people where they are, to remove this kind of imaginary um, otherness that we create uh, in our lives, separation of us versus them, which is like a fun game to play and and humans seem to love to, to put ourselves into tribes. Um, But like, when you can combine truth with compassion, I think it's, it's so, so, so powerful. Um, and it's medicine for all of us and, and compassion extends to, to self. So like discipline is another one of, um, one of of the important kind of, I think, believe it's a Yama in yoga and I'm blanking on the Sanskrit for it, but disciplined, like, I think it might be tapas, like just fiery discipline practice. Like every day at 7am I'm waking up and I'm going to do my work. I'm going to write that blog post, whatever it is. Um, but the kind of counterbalance on the seesaw to that is that self love, that self compassion of like the softness in discipline, like thinking of like the samurai warrior kind of like gracefully moving through space. It's not rigid robot like movements. It's this ease of effort because of the compassion and the self love as well. Um, so, so yeah, truth, compassion first for others discipline, and then compassion for self.
2: Awesome. Oh my God. How beautiful. Thanks guys.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Oh, and gratitude and gratitude. Of course. Oh Yes. Yes. Gratitude. Thank you.
2: That's what I've been practicing. That's that alone with the other two, of course, is what got me out of the hole, like expressing gratitude consistently, thinking compassionately, and finally discovering what that truth is. Thank you for for that. Thank you. i this was such a great conversation. It was so good to talk to you.
0: Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It's just like, it's just so nice to chat about these things. Um, and I really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much. And yeah, gratitude. I just, before we go, I do want to say one thing about gratitude because I think, um, what I've discovered in life in my older age is just the importance of gratitude and you know, like you're taught your pleases and thank yous as a young kid. And I think what happens in a weird way is that it subverts what gratitude actually is, which is this deep feeling of appreciation that you literally feel in your bones and your heart um, because it becomes uh, a should versus a want. It's like Mm -hmm. you get the piece of pizza at the birthday party and it's like, what do you say, Mark? Thank you. And it's like little Mark saying thank you, but he has no idea why. He doesn't get it. It's not like he's like, man, I'm hungry. This pizza is like amazing right now. I've been running around and thank you so much. I'm saying thank you because it's polite. I think we lose that, that kind of like deep sense of gratitude of like, wow, like I'm alive right now. Like I'm breathing air. I'm eating food. I've got incredible people around me. How lucky am I? How, how lucky am I? How lucky are we? And, um, even just like, practice that one of my coaches gave to me of just keeping a very very tiny notebook where whenever something really even small happens to me just writing out like i am grateful for this like this cool thing happened to me today i found a penny on the street or like i made it i made 13 cents from my medium post or you know some a friend brought me a croissant or said a kind word to me and all of a sudden when i was doing that practice um in a disciplined manner uh, and I lost it and I'm speaking about it, I'm gonna get back to it, but like everything started feeling like a ceremony. Everything started feeling, um, I started seeing the, the positive, the silver lining in all things around me. It was just like, I was grateful for for so many small and, and large things. And so uh, that's, I really wanted to share that because it's been it's been so, so critical for me to kind of rediscover what it means to be grateful.
1: Thank you for listening to the Digital Void Podcast. You can learn more about Mark by visiting thelookuppodcast.com and by signing up for his fantastic weekly lookup newsletter. Make sure to subscribe to the Digital Void Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast provider. We'll be back next week with the author of Zero Books' new Circle of the Snake, Grafting Tanner. Stay safe, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in.